Listen, all you New Yorkers. What's up, friends, foes, and whoever else may be listening? It is 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it is time for the next best thing right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm John Lerner, your host, each and every Monday night, and we have a great, great show put together for you. And when I say we, I mean me and my imaginary friend. A lot of things have gone on this past week, a lot to discuss, a lot of interesting things to talk about, and some great music to share with you as well. But you know what, before we get to all that, I'd like to do what we always do, and that is kick the show off with a quick review of all the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History... Today is December 5th. And on this day in history, in 1782, the first native U.S. president, Martin Van Buren, was born in Kinderhook, New York. On this day in 1848, U.S. President Polk triggered the gold rush of 49 by confirming the fact that gold had been discovered in California. On this day in 1901, Walt Disney was born in Chicago, Illinois. On this day in 1908, at the University of Pittsburgh, numerals were first used on football uniforms worn by collegiate football players. In other words, football players got numbers on their jerseys. On this day in 1932, the German physicist Albert Einstein was granted a visa making it possible for him to travel to the U.S., something Donald Trump would have hated. On this day in 1933, one year later, Prohibition came to an end when Utah became the 36th state to ratify the 21st Amendment to the Constitution. On this day, December 5th in 1951, the first button-controlled garage opened in Washington, D.C. We should celebrate that every year. On this day in 1962, the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed to cooperate in the peaceful uses of outer space as opposed to the hostile uses of outer space. On this day in 1978, the American space probe pioneer Venus 1, orbiting Venus, began beaming back its first information and picture of the planet. On this day in 1979, Sonia Johnson was formally excommunicated by the Mormon Church due to her outspoken support for the proposed Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. How dare she! That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. I'm John Lerner. Stay tuned. All right, interesting that those few random and random, both, facts happened on this day in history regarding the NFL with, what, the arcade game and the fact that they finally started having numbers put on their jerseys. Random tidbits of information, but relevant to what we'll be talking about tonight. And we'll get back to what we'll be talking about tonight right after this break and what's going on in the world, what's going on in the news. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
If at any point throughout the broadcast you hear a topic you would like to discuss or feel you have a tidbit that you could contribute, please don't hesitate to call in. I would absolutely love it. It would make my day. How about you, Brandon? Would it make your day? I don't really care. Great! The number to call is 718-928-9RFB. Again, that's 718-928-9732. And you know what? Even if you just want to call in and say hello, or better yet, call in and say, You suck! Go ahead. It would be just as delightful. Now on with the show... Yes, just as delightful. Call in, say you suck. Call in, say you're great. Doesn't make any difference to me, that number. 718-928-9732. That's 718-928-9RFB. Ugh, who couldn't better themselves by kicking off their Monday night with a little Bjork? Bjork misses you, but she hasn't met you yet. That's a perfect summary of Bjork in general. Um, all right, well... You know what? It's been a busy week for me, for you, I'm sure, for the whole world. I don't know how your week was, but let me tell you just a little bit about mine. In most recently, in the most few, in the, okay. Let me tell you a little bit about mine in the most recent days. Uh, This weekend, I worked a lot. I'm sure you guys did too. I work for a company that pretty much does all types of events. It's all-encompassing, whether, depending on the event, we might cater, we might help with a product launch, we might do... Uh, you know, a new location opening and we're there to sell it. Doesn't matter. If it's awful, we're going to be there. So this weekend, starting back on Thursday night, I worked pretty much, I worked three in a row. Now that might not sound like a lot to most people and it's really not, but see, here's the thing. In order, whenever we work, we have a very strict dress code that we have to abide by and that includes black dress shoes. Not so hard to find, not so hard to wear. But when you work as often as we do, and you're when these events were on our feet the entire time, no matter what our role is, we're on our feet the whole time. So you go through them very quickly. And I noticed on Thursday night, I was walking to the train from an event, which was, I believe, on 59th Street. And I usually, I, I don't know about you guys, but I like to walk. So after one of these events, once I'm finally released and can breathe, I like to just walk it off, kind of go a little... I walk further than I have to is what I'm trying to say. I don't go to the nearest subway station all the time. And if you remember, it was terrible weather recently. It was raining constantly. And I started to notice about halfway to the subway that I was going to, I could feel water, but not not necessarily like seeping through my shoes, but underneath my feet. Because, yeah, I'd been wearing these shoes so long that literally the bottoms were start were like worn so thin that water was coming up through the bottom of the the shoe. Needless to say, it was time to get some new ones. So I tried. <laughs> I tried. But let me just put it this way. I'm kind of, well, I like a deal. Who doesn't like a deal? I like to get most of my shoes, not clothes, but shoes I get at the great L Train Vintage stores. There's one right down the street from here, from our studio at Radio Free Brooklyn. There's one here on DeKalb. There's one, some of them, you know, I think L Train Vintage is kind of like a parent company that has taken ownership of a, a large number of 
vintage shops because there's a store called No Relation Vintage in the East Village, which is owned by L Train Vintage. And I happened to be in the East Village the next day after I realized I needed some new crappy black dress shoes. So I went to my place. I went to No Relation Vintage, part of L Train Vintage. They should pay us. Um, and I got, I always strike gold there and I'm serious. Like, you know, when you get, when you buy shirts or pants or really almost anything else at these vintage shops, you never know how it's going to fit. You never know. Even if it says it's your size on the label, please, you don't know. First of all, if it's, if it's pre-owned and it's been washed, you know, it's probably shrunk or it's been stretched out. You just never know how it's going to fit. And anytime I've purchased a shirt, or really anything other than shoes at these stores, I go home and are you probably thinking, why don't you try it on before you leave? You know what? Not a bad idea. But let's get to the point. So I usually strike gold when it comes to shoes at these stores. And I'm serious. I'll find great Cole Haan shoes for like 15 to 30 bucks. If you go to a Cole Haan store, you will find the same shoes for probably $145. So I'm striking gold here. And I always managed to find a gym. I thought I did that last Friday morning. I went to L Train Vintage. I looked at their black dress shoes. Couldn't find anything that was... I wear a size 13, so that's not the most common. So you really got to search for a gym when you go to these vintage shops. But I usually find them when it comes to shoes. And I looked and I looked and I spotted a pair of, lo and behold, Cole Haan black dress shoes. However... One catch, they were one size too small. Now, I had been to a Kmart. I don't know if you've heard of this store. It's called the Kmart. There's one on Astor Place. I'd been there a little earlier in the day, and I'd seen some black dress shoes for like 40 bucks, but I thought, you know what? These are crappy, plastic, rubbery dress shoes for like 40 bucks. I bet you I can find some great black dress shoes at my favorite spot, No Relation Vintage, for a lot cheaper that are a lot better. And that's what I did. These Cole Haan, they looked immaculate. They looked like they had never been worn, which is another difference between the shoes and everything else in those shops. So I thought, okay, now, these are one size too small, but they didn't have size 13 dress shoes. They didn't have any others. Those were the biggest they had. They were the best looking. I thought to myself, they were $15. Cole Haan. And I thought, okay. Is it worth it? Can I risk getting one size too small? I, you know, I've been working with these, this event company. I can't believe how long the story's going. I've been working with this company long enough to know that if you wear uncomfortable shoes, you might as well just cut yourself, cut your head off. I was going to say blow your head off, but I hate guns. It's miserable. If you have uncomfortable shoes and you're working one of these gigs where you're on your feet all day, you just want to shoot yourself in the face. And yet, here I saw these shoes that I knew were one size too small, and I thought, well, they're 15 bucks. they're Cole Haan, I've squeezed into size 12s before, I'm just going to do it, I'm just going to give it a try. That, and I did try them on first. Walked around the room, which does nothing, because that's, you can't, that doesn't tell you what it's going to be like to be in these shoes all night. So I got them, I thought I'd gotten a steal, I actually was texting people as I was leaving, saying... What a, you know, kind of bragging about this fine. And let's just put it this way. By the end of that night, after my first event in these shoes, I, 
it's not even that they were too small because when you wear shoes that are too small, it's kind of like your toes and the front part of your feet really start to hurt like a mother. That didn't happen. And I had put enough, anytime I get new shoes from anywhere, I put in at least one, usually two, sometimes three, even four layers of Dr. Scholl's insoles. Because come on, we live in New York. You learn that right away. So I had the insoles in. The front of my feet weren't bothering me too much. But for the love of all that is good and holy, the back of my feet, the Achilles, were so rubbed raw that I could barely walk out of that event to get on the subway and limp home. Get home, sure enough, blisters on the back of both of my feet. Problem. I got home really late that night and had to work again the next day, Saturday. I knew. So what can I do? I have no other black dress shoes. So I wear these dress shoes again. And the second I smashed my feet into them, I was like, oh, dear Jesus, this is not going to be good. And it wasn't. It was, I thought I took precautions. I taped to the back of my feet up. I wore two layers of socks thinking I could maybe pad that scratching in the back did nothing in fact i think wearing two layers of socks made it worse so halfway through the event i took took one pair of socks off by the way whoever worked with me was lucky enough to hear me complain from beginning to end and then when i got home that night these were both long events when i got home that night i the back of my right foot it's like the blister from the night before was there but then around that about five times the size of a normal blister, is the back of my foot. It is entirely blistered over and bloody and pussy and delicious. So that's my story. I hope I hope no one's eating dinner. What's your story? How did your weekend go? Was it that much fun? I'm wearing, this is embarrassing to admit, but a pair of Skechers right now. Real bouncy, real soft and cushy. They still hurt. They're the right size, too. What an idiot I was to buy a pair of shoes that were too small, period. But I did it. And on that note, that's what's going on in my news and what's going on in my world. Now let's see what's going on in the news and what's going on in the world, shall we? You're listening to The Next Best Thing. Here's what's making news tonight. Okay. I really do hope no one was trying to eat while I told that story because it was gross. And these feet are gross. Anyway, moving right along. All right, so what's going on in the news? What's going on in the world? Hello. That's background music. Okay, according to the New York Daily News, a raging, literally raging bodybuilder on crystal meth forced cops to shut down the Manhattan-bound side of the Holland Tunnel when he rampaged through traffic last Tuesday. Hmm. Rampaged on foot. The Port Authority cops spotted the 42-year-old Keith Simiday, Semiday, whatever, running between stopped cars around 6 a.m. near the toll plaza in Jersey City. He's 6'1", 175 pounds. Tried to pull open the doors of several cars, scaring the crap out of the drivers. I guess everyone's doors were locked. Smart. Mine probably wouldn't have been. Cops ran over, wrestled him to the ground. He went ballistic. He tried to pull away and flailed arms before he was finally handcuffed. He then calmly told the cops that he'd been smoking crystal meth 
all night. Oh, well, at least he's honest. Turns out traffic was shut down for about 14 minutes while the mini-drama unfolded. 14 minutes? That's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. All right, moving right along. Starting on January 20th, get that? Starting on January 20th, Donald Trump, the president-elect, will be able to send unblockable mass text messages to the entire country. <laughs> so enjoy that, America. You get what you deserve. Also, Madison, Madison Square Park will be turned into a giant gingerbread village this month. Oh, for the holidays. A giant gingerbread village. Huh. In other words, the rats in New York City have become so plentiful and so forceful that they're getting their own village. One they can eat. And one that will attract them from all over the world. Moving along, Think Progress has added an interactive post-election map tracking hate crimes. Because, as we've said multiple times, they've skyrocketed since the election. Moving along, last year, last year, Donald Trump, who is the president-elect, I hate to tell you again, last year he told David Letterman that he was totally okay with flag burning. People can do what they want. It's okay. Last week, he said that he thought people who burned the flags should be jailed and potentially, potentially stripped of their citizenship. Awesome. So that, that pretty much is sums up Donald Trump in a nutshell. We talked about Bjork. Here's Donald Trump. Told Dave Letterman, yeah, it's okay. You know what? They can do what they want. They, hey, freedom of speech. I'm all, for, I'm all for freedom of I'm all for freedom of Hello. He's all for freedom of speech. He's the best at freedom of speech. Now he thinks they should be stripped of their citizenship and jailed. Naturally. And tomorrow he'll probably think they should be tarred and feathered. Speaking of Alec, excuse me, speaking of Donald Trump, he hates Alec Baldwin's portrayal of him on SNL. He hates it with a passion, and he's made no secret of that. He's made that very known through his his beautiful Twitter account, as he calls it. Baldwin has recently responded, saying that he will gladly stop doing the impersonation if Trump releases his tax returns. I think that's a lie. I do not believe Alex, or excuse me, Alec Baldwin would stop. And frankly, it's he makes that. He makes that uh, proposition knowing that Donald Trump will not release his tax returns. Here's what I'll say about this. I wish Alec Baldwin would stop doing the impersonation, not because I don't think he should be impersonated, Donald Trump, but because, hello, there's no competition. The best Donald Trump impression on that show came from Daryl Hammond. He was hysterical as Donald Trump. The first time I saw Alec Baldwin do it, I thought it was interesting, funny. I thought he did a really good job. I didn't think he was going to be the permanent Donald Trump. I mean, come on. Doesn't he have some movies to make or, you know, like paparazzi to harass? I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? Come on and tell me. Moving right along. The Mall of America has hired its first Black Santa for Christmas this season. Oh, if it were 1982, that would be great. It's 2016, so all I can say is what the hell? What the hell? All right. Next item of business. Um, okay. Former Kansas City Chiefs player Joe McKnight was confirmed as the murder victim of a shooting incident in Terrytown, Louisiana last Thursday afternoon. According to the New Orleans Times Picayune, McKnight and the shooter had an argument of some kind before he was shot in an intersection. 
A witness who declined to give her name said she was leaving a store in the area when she saw a man at the intersection yelling at another man who was trying to apologize. The man who was yelling shot the man more than once, she said. So this was a road rage incident that ended in a murder. Now, do we really think that this would have resulted in a murder had the guy with the gun not had a gun? I don't. So that's an example of a rather common altercation, road rage. Like road rage, like domestic disputes, like, you know, fighting in a bar. Those are examples of semi-common incidents that are usually brushed aside and forgotten about. But they end in a murder when there's a gun made available at the moment. And that is why I hate guns so goddamn much. The shooter, now this is important too, this is something to really kind of keep in mind and remember. The shooter is not in jail. Is not in jail. In fact, it's being reported that the shots most likely came from inside his own car and therefore he was, quote, standing his ground. Is this the Twilight Zone? So they're saying that this is going to be probably like another Trayvon Martin case. And yes, Joe McKnight, who has been murdered, was black, and the shooter is white. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I don't, I do care. But I just, the mere fact that there was a, a minor road rage incident that ended with some guy taking out a gun and shooting the other guy multiple times, murdering him. And he was able to go home and sleep in his own bed that night because he said, I was standing my ground. Look, I don't know all the details. And maybe he was. Maybe he will end up being justified. But let's flip place, Let's flip the places here. Had it been Joe McKnight who had done the shooting and the white guy who got shot and killed, I just can't imagine that the cops would have said, you know what? We believe you. Go on home and have a good night. Do you think that would happen? Because if you do... You probably voted for Donald Trump. This is not going to be a fleeting story. There's going to be more on this in the coming days. And we will update you next week. I think it's going to be a big story. It better be a big story because that's absolutely insane and outrageous. Okay, we're going to end this segment on a good note because that's not a good note. Here's a nice, fun piece of news, okay? A New York City woman found her lost wedding ring in a trash dump. Oh, yes. The New York Daily News reported that 34-year-old, a 34-year-old woman, was preparing Thanksgiving dinner at her Tribeca apartment when she removed the rings and placed them on a paper towel by the sink. The jewelry, which included the woman's diamond-studded wedding band and engagement ring, accidentally wound up in the trash and was picked up by garbage collectors on Friday. By the time the woman contacted the city Department of Sanitation... The rings were among 13 tons of stanky garbage waste in a collection truck. So what'd she do? Here's what I would have done. Sulked for probably five days and then tried to move on with my life. She didn't do that. She took action. She and a friend and maybe her mother went to the dump, went to the dump and sifted through various garbage for, get this, Two hours, 13 tons of garbage they sifted through, and two hours later, with the help of some of the guys at the plant, 
they found her jewelry, her all of her wedding rings, her engagement ring, and everything else. They found it. Unbelievable. It's a Christmas miracle. They really do happen, don't they, folks? Yes, they do. So that's what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, for the most part, as I do a little reconfiguring here. And, um, you know, some good, some bad, mostly bad, but hey, that's the world we live in, right? All right, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with, um, well, with a topic that always leaves me a little conflicted. It's not. It's about the NFL, but believe it or not, it's not all that much about football. Weird, you're probably thinking. Yeah, it is a little weird, and we're going to talk about it when we come back. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. Standing still in shadow streams that fail to fill I'm left in need these thousand tears that fall to my feet come to nothing and I'm only
Anyone who cares, the Jets are currently getting their asses kicked on Monday Night Football against the Colts. The third quarter has recently ended, and the Colts are winning 34-3. to Go team, go team.
I'm such a funny girl Telling you a story To brighten up your world I'm a girl You like to have around I'm a spinning pleasure magnet Trying not to frown This is the next best thing. Don't go. Okay, so for the main thing we're going to talk about tonight, by the way, that last song was I'm Forcing Goodness Upon You by Sherry Elf. And yes, those were sewing machines in the background being used as instruments, I guess. All right, so we've talked, or the NFL has been mentioned a few times tonight. Um... You know, I've said on the show before that I root for the Kansas City Chiefs. Huge fan. Uh, they last yesterday they beat the Atlanta Falcons um, in a huge game. It was a, a great game. I love the Chiefs. I love watching the Chiefs. I love watching football. I do fantasy football. I love all that stuff. But I can't watch a game, whether it's the Chiefs or anyone else, without feeling like a hypocrite and. Okay, so there's a player on the Chiefs. His name is Eric Berry. I believe he's about my age. He's like 27, 28 years old. And he is probably the most inspiring human being alive, in my opinion. So in 2000, first of all, he, he's a safety on the Chiefs. He's been one of their best, most impactful players on and off the field since he was drafted, I think, in like 2010 or something. Um in in 2014 right after a game against the Oakland Raiders and I'll I'll never forget it because I remember watching the game seeing him leave the field which is something he never did ever he's on the field the whole game usually he's when the defense is playing that is and um he left the field and it was reported later that that was because he was experiencing chest pains of some sort tightness and just some weird chest pain, so they had the trainer look him up, or look him over. Then they had him go away for some tests, and it turned out that he had lymphoma, cancer. Now, that was in November, I think, of 2014. Now, then he had to go through everything you have to go through. I mean, he, he, 
he disappeared from the public light, naturally. And he went through chemo, he went through radiation, he went through it all. The next, I think, September, so less than a year, ten, nine, ten months later, he was cleared to train with them in OTAs, basically come with them to start getting ready for the season. Less than a year later. I mean, when he was diagnosed with lymphoma, people were heartbroken and wondering if he was going to live. Whether or not he would ever play again was just something in the periphery. No one even really was thinking about it. When stuff like that comes up, you don't think about football or work in this case. So the fact that he was back training less than a year after a diagnosis, and think about it. In those 10 months, he went through it all. Radiation, chemotherapy. I mean, and that kicks your ass. I don't know if you've ever... I've never been through chemotherapy, but I know people who have, and it is... Pain, it is so heartbreaking to see them go through it because it kills. I mean, that's what chemotherapy is. It kills every, all of your cells, including the cancer cells, hopefully hoping that they won't come back while all the other cells will. But my God, you are weak. You are constantly sick. It is not, I just, it is, you're just trying to survive. It was reported that while he was going through chemotherapy, he wasn't just trying to survive, but he would actually, he took his, he, I think, took treatments through an IV in his arm, as opposed to the most common way, so that he could continue working out. He was working out while going through chemo. Usually people, when they're on chemo, they become really thin and skinny because they you have no, no appetite. It's hard to eat anything. He actually gained a pound. It seems, all this stuff seems impossible, seems un, un, unheard of. So when he was cleared to play in September, less than a year after his diagnosis, people were ecstatic, but they thought, you know what? Okay, let's just see how he does. He came back to have one of his best, most impactful years ever in 2015. He made the Pro Bowl. He was an All-Pro. He he's truly had one of his best years ever. So inspiring. I mean, this game yesterday, the reason I even bring him up it's because it was against the Atlanta Falcons and it was in Georgia. He's from that area and he had never played a professional game there. And he's the reason the Chiefs won. He had a pick six, which means he intercepted the ball and ran it back for a touchdown. So the other team had the ball on offense, tried to make a pass. He intercepted it and ran it back for a touchdown. That's six points right there. Then towards the end of the game, when the Chiefs had coughed up the lead and the Falcons went up 28 to 27 and thought, let's go for a two-point conversion so that we're up by three as opposed to up by two. Well, guess what happened? Eric Berry, being the, he, being the magician that he is, intercepted that throw as well and ran it all the way back for two points on the Chiefs' side, which made the score 28 or 29 to 28, and that's how it ended. Chiefs win 29-28. We wouldn't have done it without Eric Berry. And it was such an amazing story because there he was back in Atlanta. He said after the game that the last time I came back here during the football season, it was to get chemotherapy treatments. This time it was to play in the game. And my whole family's here. After his first interception, you could see him go over to the sidelines, go over to the stands and hand the ball to his mother. And after he intercepted the second one, he did the same thing to his father. The whole story is unbelievable. 
truly unbelievable. I mean, he is playing at an elite level better than he was before the cancer. It's just, to say it's inspiring is an understatement, and he always talks about his parents. He was asked about handing the balls to them after the, uh, after the game, I was going to say after the show, which is true in a way. And he said, you know what, I would, there's nothing I can do will ever compare to what they did for me going through treatments. There were nights that I stayed up all night crying to them, trying to figure out why this had happened and what was going to happen next. And they were there for me. They told me to keep pressing, to stay strong, to get through it. And I could get myself back to where I wanted to be and back on the field. And he did. I mean, it's just an amazing story. He won Comeback Player of the Year. He won an ESPY award, which is basically ESPN's version of the Oscars, Grammys, whatever. Huge, uh, unbelievable, feel-good story and so inspiring. And yet, here's the thing. Eric Berry, as much as I love that guy, and I'm so glad he's on, quote-unquote, my team, and I'm inspired by him, which I truly am. Eric Berry is an intense competitor. He said, excuse me. He's a safety, which means he plays on defense, which means when he sees someone from the other team get the ball, whether it's they're handed the ball or it's thrown to them or whatever, his job is to tackle the crap out of them and keep them from getting anywhere near our end zone. And he does that very well. In the game against the Denver Broncos two weeks ago, he... It's 11 o'clock. It's 11 o'clock, friends. In case anyone was wondering, it's 11 o'clock. And it's also... Okay, it's also 50 degrees here in Brooklyn. All right, so in the game against um, the Denver Broncos, there were some hits that he made that were really intense, violent, hard hits. He's a fierce competitor. Every time I saw him make one of these huge hits, I kind of cringed a little bit. Because, and this goes way beyond Derek Berry, there are a lot of guys on the Chiefs that I like a lot for various reasons. And yet, when I cheer for them, when I watch them, and when I see them get hit, all I can think about is, oh, for Eric Berry, for example, everything I just told you about him, that's all with me at all times. And when I see him make a huge play, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, he's so amazing, I hope in 20 years he hasn't lost his mind. And that's not a joke. And I'm not, I mean, I actually mean that because you've probably heard a little bit about the concussion issue. The NFL has really been refusing to deal with for a long time, but I know too much to watch these games and not feel like a hypocrite. I know too much to see these hits and not worry for them truly and i don't mean you know i don't mean that in an altruistic way like oh i I love everybody and if i see someone hurt my heart breaks for the world i mean in a way sure but with these it's so the stories that you probably haven't heard are unbelievable and there's a book called league of denial the nfl's concussion crisis which was then not made into a movie well it was kind of the basis for a frontline documentary, which if you haven't, if you guys, it, the frontline, which is a 
Beats documentary series on PBS, probably the best thing on television. Truly. Um, they do such a great job with whatever they dig in and research. About three years ago, they did a full in-depth investigation on this issue, the NFL and the concussion crisis. And if you, you, you should read the book, but if you're not going to read the book, you have to watch this documentary. You can find it for free on PBS's website or Frontline's website. You can watch it for free is my point. And, and if you have any interest in football at all, you, you'll find it absolutely fascinating. Um, and even if you don't, I think if you have any interest in the human condition, you'll find it fascinating because you don't have to be a football fan to know how huge the NFL is in our country. I mean, they have their own day of the week. Sunday is NFL, Super Bowl Sunday is like a national holiday. Um, you don't have to be a huge football fan to know that the NFL is a huge part of American culture and how they've dealt with this quote unquote crisis really will make you pause. I'm going to play some clips from the frontline documentary. They're long clips. I'm only going to play a few, but, but it does, it should give you a taste of what's uncovered by this documentary. Now, what started all this? When did people, I mean, it's not, frankly, it's not rocket science that if you are a big, strong man and you repeatedly smash your head into another man or whatever, you're probably going to, you know, lose some brain cells. Sure. But that's barely skimming the surface. People weren't just quote unquote losing brain cells. They weren't becoming more forgetful. People were truly losing their minds and their lives were falling apart in a perfect, probably extreme, but perfect and early example of that was a man named Mike Webster. And Mike Webster and the doctor who examined him after he had died, so his, the medical examiner, they're the ones who really kind of got this whole thing started. They really kicked off the look into concussions and what happens to the brains of football players. Here's a little bit of their story. Super Bowl championship teams. Webster's attorney, Bob Fitzsimmons. Mike was a legend and a hero. He may have been uh, the legend and the hero. Webster's wife, Pam. I just loved watching him play. And Mike's favorite games were the ones that were cold and snowy and frigid. And he could get up there with his short sleeves. I'm ready to smash somebody. And the dirtier and muddier it got made things better. after he retired, the people of Pittsburgh received some bad news. At what price glory, the Hall of Fame center Mike Webster died at the age of 50. He died on Tuesday. He was just 50 years old. He was known as Iron Mike. He had heart disease. The news that day would start a chain of events that would threaten to forever change the way Americans see the game of football. It is hard to find a former pro football player whose body hasn't paid a very high price. Mike Webster's body was delivered to the Allegheny County Coroner's Office. 
Frontline and ESPN reporter Mark Fenneruwada. Webster ends up in the autopsy room, and the pathologist who's on call that day is this guy, Bennett Amalu. Frontline and ESPN reporter Steve Fenneru. Amalu parked his car and walked into the office, and he said, what's going on? And one of his colleagues said, it's Mike Webster. He's, he's up in the, in the autopsy room. And Amalu's response was, who's Mike Webster? Dr. Bennett Amalu. And everybody looked at me like, where is he from? Is he from Aldersburg? Who is this guy who doesn't know Mike Webster in Pittsburgh? A doctor, Amalu was also a trained neuropathologist. From the beginning of the autopsy, Dr. Amalu could see the effects of 17 years in the football wars. Mike looked older than his age. He looked beat up. He looked... He looked worn out. He looked drained. If I had not been told his age, I would say he looked like 70. Romano started at the feet and worked his way up. There were cracks running the length of his feet, and they were incredibly painful, and so Webster would duct tape his feet as well to sort of close those, close those cracks and keep, them to, and keep them together. Webster's son, Garrett. His feet and his legs were definitely, you could just tell, were destroyed. You know, he had veins all over his, his leg, varicose veins and stuff like that. There were several herniated discs, a broken vertebra, torn rotator cuff, and separated shoulder. His teeth were falling out. His body, he had cellulitis. He had a heart. His heart, you know, was getting enlarged. Son Colin Webster. You know, he was super gluing his teeth back into his head, and he actually made that work. I mean, I think Dad's the only person who could actually, you know, have a medical problem like that and decide to fix it with super glue. Then there was the matter of Webster's forehead. Webster's forehead was essentially fixed to its scalp. The skin on his forehead had built up almost a shelf of scar tissue that, from the continuous pounding, of his head into, into other, other people. Webster's death certificate made Amalu suspect he may have suffered from a brain disorder. When I opened up his skull, in my mind, I had a mental picture of what his brain would look like based on my education. I was expecting to see a brain with Alzheimer's disease features, so a shriveled, ugly-looking brain. But upon opening his skull, Mike's brain looked normal. Journalist Jean Marie Laskus. He didn't understand why that would be, but he became more and more curious. It became sort of like his little private mission. And that was the beginning. So that's kind of what kicked it off. It was Mike Webster being brought in, and everything about him was worn out. I mean... <clears throat> The things you just heard in that clip about his feet being cracked and painful, about his feet, uh, excuse me, his teeth falling out of his head and him super gluing them back in. I mean, that kind of stuff, that's, that's just, you know, skimming the surface. Like I said, he also was living out of his car. This was a guy who had four Super Bowl rings. He was a huge leader on the Steelers team when they won those Super Bowls. And he was living out of his car, asking people to tase him so that he could fall asleep. Couldn't 
hold a sentence. I mean, couldn't complete a full sentence without losing his train of thought. Now, I know what you're going to say. That's probably an extreme example. And frankly, it, you know, with the whole sleeping in the car, gluing your teeth back in your head. Okay. Maybe not a ton of former NFL players have been doing that, but having a change in personality, losing their memory completely, that's not uncommon. And the Chiefs kind of experienced that firsthand three years ago, right around when this documentary came out. Um, a linebacker who played on the Chiefs, his name was Jovan Belcher. I don't know if anyone will remember this, but he, one day during the season, now this was when the Chiefs were terrible. Nowadays, no one talks about the Chiefs because they're really good and we live in New York and so no one talks about them because East Coast bias. But you know what? Whatever. This was back when the Chiefs were god-awful, so surely no one was going to talk about them. But Javon Belcher, who was a linebacker for the Chiefs, I think he was 25, shot and killed his girlfriend, with whom he had just had a baby girl, nine times. He shot her nine times. She died. He then drove himself from the house to the Chiefs' practice facility and in front of the GM and head coach at the time, killed himself with the gun. It was later discovered that he had the same brain injury that Mike Webster had, which they came to name CTE, Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy. Now, who discovered that? The guy who worked on Mike Webster, Bennett Amalu. And so what happened when he discovered that what did the NFL do? Well, I'll let Frontline tell you because they are much more eloquent than probably all of us. Dr. Amalo believed he saw physical evidence of the long-term damage playing football could have on the brain. It was a scientific first. After I looked at it over and over and over and over, I was convinced this was something. It was a disease never previously identified in football players. Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, CTE. Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy is a disease, a progressive neurodegenerative disease, where the end stage leaves tau protein deposition in distinctive areas of the brain, in distinctive locations that separate this disease from any other, like Alzheimer's or some other dementia. For some reason, the repetitive brain trauma starts this cascade of events in the brain that changes the way this tau looks and behaves. It, be it goes awry, and it starts destroying the integrity of the brain cells. The tau is effectively closing in around the brain cells and choking them and it's impacting the way the brain is working and ultimately erupting in issues around memory, agitation, anger. Amalu shared his evidence with leading brain researchers who confirmed his findings. It was the first hard evidence that playing football could cause permanent brain damage. Certainly we knew that if you got hit on the head so many times that maybe you had a 20% chance of having dementia pugilistica if you were a former professional boxer. But we didn't really relate that in a modern sport like football, in a helmeted sport, 
that it could lead to that, and that was the big discovery, I think. Dr. Amalu believes the National Football League would want to know about his discovery. That was what I thought in my naive state of mind. But unfortunately, I was, um, I was proving wrong, you know. Uh, that, that, it, it, it wasn't meant to be that way. Dr. Omalo wrote a paper for the journal Neurosurgery. In a letter to the editor, Dr. Pellman and other members of the NFL's MTBI committee attacked it. These statements are based on a complete misunderstanding of the relevant medical literature. The league officials, the doctors and scientists serving on the MTBI committee, not only disputed those findings, they went after Dr. Malu with a vengeance. Pellman made statements like, what I practice is not medicine, it's not science. They insinuated I was not practicing medicine, I was practicing voodoo. Voodoo. The NFL would not publicly sit down with Dr. Amalo, but one night in a private meeting, he brought his CTE slides and finally met face to face with one of the NFL's doctors. And the NFL doctor at some point said to me, Bennett, do you know the implications of what you're doing? I looked, he was on my left. I said, yeah, I think I do. He said, no, you don't. So we continued talking, talking. At some point, he interrupted me again. Bennett, do you think you know the implications of what you're doing? I said, I, I think I do. I don't know. He said, no, you don't. So we continued talking again. Then the third time, he interrupted me. And I turned to him. I said, OK, why don't you tell me what the implications are? He said, OK, I'll tell you. He said, if 10% of mothers in this country would begin to perceive football as a dangerous sport, that is the end of football. For the most part, people didn't want to believe it's true. They didn't want to admit to themselves or anybody else that our beloved sport, probably our most popular sport, could end up with brain damage. I didn't want to admit it to myself either. It was a, a hard message, a difficult message, a bad message, but it appeared to be true. The league had successfully held the line, denying the dangers of football. They refused to listen to people who didn't share their opinions about the research. And it was very much, you know, putting a stake in the ground saying, Everybody else is wrong. And that's what they did. All right. So it's not just about the effects of football and concussions. But this documentary and this story really is about the NFL and the way they handled this, the way they reacted to people, to doctors and and scientists and medical people pointing this out to them. They didn't want to hear it. They wouldn't hear it. Not only did they deny it was true, or did they kind of act like... It's not just that they wouldn't hear it, but they, like you heard just then in that clip, they went after people who said such things. They asked this doctor, who, by the way, Dr. Amalu, 
has like seven degrees. I mean, truly, he's a, I mean, I would say brilliant physician, but that's subjective. You can't deny that he is very, very thoroughly and well-educated because seven degrees. And he wrote this um, piece for a medical journal about CTE and the effects of concussions. And the NFL, who had put a rheumatologist in charge of this department, a rheumatologist worked on the board for the NFL when it came to concussions and head trauma. Rheumatologist, that's an arthritis doctor. And this arthritis doctor attacked Dr. Amalu and said that this guy was nuts. He didn't understand medical science. He was practicing voodoo. Voodoo. He wanted the article that, or he wanted the piece for the medical journal that Dr. Amalu had written, he wanted it retracted. That's not something you, that's just not something that happens in the medical world. And you don't even make such a request unless you are accusing the author of malpractice. I mean, not just ignorance, but actual malpractice and endangering people. So that's what the NFL did. They didn't just refuse to listen, but they actively attacked the messenger. Um, This is the NFL, you know, the team that has, we've been hearing a lot about domestic abuse in the NFL. I just gave you a story from my own team, Javon Velcher, except it wasn't abuse, it was murder. There's also been Ray Rice, who was caught on film, punching the crap out of his girlfriend. He was, he was cut from his team and has yet to ever find a new team. And then there's Josh Norman, or whoever, the kicker for the Giants, I think. He was just cut because he had a huge incident. I ha- I hate to admit this, but frankly, there's another player on the Chiefs right now who had an incident, incident with domestic violence. And, you know, what sort are we supposed to think? That football players are just naturally, they're violent guys. Hey, they like to tackle, so surely they're going to beat up on their wives? No, because a lot of these guys who end up you know, it's been revealed that they became violent and, you know, violent with their children or their spouses. They come from people who, according to their family and their children and the people who actually were abused, that this was this was a gradual thing. This never was something that they ever dealt with early on. It came after years of football. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that, hey, if you play football, you're going to lose your mind, become violent, and beat your family. That's not necessarily what I'm saying, but you have to watch the documentary because what they, what, I mean, the evidence they provide is unbelievable. And to kind of deny it is to have your head in the sand, which is exactly what the NFL has done and continues to do. And it goes farther than just Dr. Amalu. They're not just kicking him to the curb. They're also doing it to NFL families. Another force was causing trouble for the NFL. The wives and widows of players with CTE. I don't think anyone else but the wives, sisters, mothers, daughters, and Anne McKee 
could have forced this issue into American consciousness. Eleanor Perfetto was one of them. Her husband, Ralph Wenzel, had played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. As the disease progressed, um, he went from being ill but fairly functional um, to getting to the point where he could no longer you know, dress or feed himself. Um, and, and in the last year and a half to two years before he died, he couldn't even walk anymore. She'd spent years trying to get help from the NFL and its Players Association. Then Profeto took matters into her own hands. She showed up uninvited to a league meeting about caring for retired players. There's going to be a meeting that the commissioner is holding with former players. And, you know, her husband, suffering, you know, from dementia, obviously can't be represented there by anybody but her. And she's told she's not allowed to enter the room. It was the commissioner himself, Roger Goodell, who kept Perfetto out. And I said, I'd like to attend this meeting. And he said, no, you, you can't attend. It's only for players. It's not for anyone else. And I said, but, but my, player, my, my husband is a player who's severely disabled, and he can't be here right now. Nevertheless, the commissioner said no. The issue is head injuries among players, and if those injuries can As lead to... As the concussion the story received more attention, today was on the coverage helped spark interest in the nation's capital. Congress considers concussions in the NFL. is getting into the game. They're looking into the long-term impact on... will come to order. Congress is looking into the long-term impact of concussions. Congress saw it as a way to put the NFL's concussion policies on trial in the court of public opinion. The commissioner arrived like a celebrity, the star attraction at the hearing, and the focus of all the cameras. Goodell is asked point blank if he stands by the idea that concussions don't hurt pro football players. Let me address your first question. I can't uh, answer. You're obviously seeing a lot of data and a lot of information that uh, our committees and others have uh, presented with respect to the linkage, and the medical experts uh, should be the one to be able to continue that debate. I just asked you a simple question. What's the answer? The answer is the medical experts are no better than I would with respect to that. But we His consistent response to questions was, I am not a scientist, and, and any questions about the long-term effects of concussion or head trauma in NFL players are better addressed to scientists. One at a time, committee members yeah. went after Goodell. Uh, we have heard from the NFL time and time again, you're always studying, you're always trying, you're hopeful. I want to know, what are you doing now? The NFL sort of reminds me of the tobacco companies uh, pre-90s when they kept saying, oh, there's no link between smoking and um, damage to your health or ill health effects. The last thing the league wanted to be dealing with in that moment was the analogy to big tobacco. By 2012, the NFL went on the offensive. The commissioner helped to promote a youth football safety initiative, the Heads Up program. The league donated $30 million to the National Institutes of Health to study sports injuries, including joint disease, chronic pain, and CTE. We recently committed $30 million to the National Institutes of Health. Good PR is one part of the NFL strategy, but the other piece of it is that the NFL wants to come off as being very forward-looking. 
The NFL wants to keep pushing these questions uh, into the future, keep the, dis keep the discoveries going, make it seem like these questions that still need to be resolved are things that the league is working with doctors and researchers on. Right. It's all about optics. They want to look like they're taking action, really kind of delving in and working with doctors to figure this out. What's the problem? How can we fix it? That's not what they're doing. They're working on making it look like that, and they're working on shutting people up. Families. Junior Seau. Junior Seau played in the NFL for a long time. He was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, but he wasn't there because he committed suicide fairly recently, and he shot himself in the chest, and he left his family a message specifically telling them that he shot himself in the chest as, a, chest as opposed to his head because he wanted people, he wanted scientists and doctors to be able to study his head, his brain, after he was dead so that they could see if he also was affected by CTE. And of course, he was. Now, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, he couldn't be there, but his family, his daughter in particular, said, listen, I would love to speak on his behalf and accept his golden jacket and, you know, represent our family. The NFL said, sorry, nope, can't do it, won't do it, get out of here. That's how they treated his family. Why? Because they were worried that she might say something about concussions and what, what effect it had on her father. They worried about that, so instead, they worried about that looking bad. So instead, they decided to tell the daughter of a Hall of Famer who had committed suicide that she couldn't be there to represent her dad. Because that looks better. The NFL is ass-backwards, man. It's a messed-up organization, and <clears throat> they. this is like the underlying... I think this is kind of the underlying issue that really kind of is what is behind almost all of their other issues, and they have a lot of them. The team name of the Washington team, but that's not really the NFL so much as that owner, but domestic violence... Bullying a few years ago with Richie Incognito, bullying one of his teammates so much so that he had he wanted to quit. Um, that's not normal behavior, and I think I think a lot of it can be traced back to head trauma, brain problems. And if you haven't heard a lot about this, it's because a lot of it isn't reported. Because frankly. CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, they're all in bed with the NFL. They all want NFL games on their network. Why? Because everyone watches and it gets huge ratings and then they get a lot of advertisers. They make a lot of money. That's why they don't report a lot about it. That's why they don't report about it a lot. That's why you're hearing this from Frontline PBS. They don't care. They're about the truth. They don't care what the NFL thinks. They want to report the truth and that's what they did. ESPN was originally partnering on that documentary, and they backed out in the middle. Why? What do you think? So you don't hear a whole lot about it. But let me assure you that Mike Webster is not the only one affected. Javon Belcher, who I told the story about killing his girlfriend and then himself, he's hardly the only one affected. 
in this documentary, they take you through player by player by player, not just in the NFL, but in college, in high school, in high school. There was a story towards the end of the documentary, which I strongly suggest, Frontline, League of Denial, look it up, watch it for free. Um, there's a story towards the end about an 18-year-old who died, who died suddenly and unexplainably. His brain was examined, and he showed early signs of CTE. CTE, it's a disease that happens from the repeated banging of the brain up against the skull, proteins form that strangle the brain pretty much and stop it from functioning normally. People become more aggressive, they lose their memory, they lose their um, motor skills, they just lose their minds. And I'm not the only one to talk about it. Keith Olbermann, who we've talked about before, can be very polarizing. I don't always agree with him, and I certainly don't always love his manner of presentation. But he talked about this on his old show that was on his ESPN that has since been canceled. Interesting, right? Well, here's what he had to say. And he talks about more than just Mike Webster, because they are, there are a lot more cases than that one. The list is sobering and long and tragic. In the wake of the $765 million settlement between the NFL and 4,500 former players suing the league over head trauma, the list, the names, the men lost to dementia or death or both should be enough to make every fan and every football person and every sports writer somber and at least respectful. Sadly, no. Just let me mention some of these names briefly. Junior Seau, Dave Dewerson, John Mackey, Forrest Blue, Jamal Lewis, Jim McMahon, Mike Webster, Justin Strelzik, Chris Henry, Terry Long, Andre Waters, John Grimsley, Ray Easterling, Shane Dronat, Tom McHale, Doug Kotar, whom I mentioned last night. Reaction follows from CBSSports.com. I just got off the phone with my attorney. Why? I had a concussion playing 115-pound football and another in school, so I am suing. Why not? I might get an extra $100,000 or so for my bank account. The precedent has been set. The NFL settled Thursday with a group of players filing concussion lawsuits to the tune of $765 million. So why not go after the high schools, Pop Warner, colleges, and maybe even those two-hand touch games set up by our dads? CBS identifies that columnist as a former Jaguars beat writer, meaning he might have once interviewed running back Jamal Lewis of the Ravens and Browns. This is Jamal Lewis now, post-concussion. You know, really, I think that, go back, I forgot what she was what was the question? Back to the column. I know there are risks to play football, but that's what anybody who has ever played the game knows. And yes, I know there are better ways now to handle concussions than they used to. CBS says its columnist has covered the NFL for three decades. That means he overlapped with the wild, effervescent Jim McMahon of the Bears. This is Jim McMahon now, post-concussion. Short-term memory is not good. Uh, I won't, you know, I won't remember a hell of a lot about this interview in about 10 minutes, probably. You know, the anger kind of comes in once in a while. He's like, you, know, you dumbass, why are you doing this? You know, what were you doing this for? Why are, you, why are you in this room, you know? Back to the column. Deep down, I am glad the players got their money. The NFL can't afford it, but I will say this. I don't think they deserve it. 
CBS says its columnist also hosts its online football show. This presumably means he is familiar with at least the modern members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, like Mike Webster, the indomitable center of the Pittsburgh Steelers, four Super Bowl wins in six years. This was Mike Webster six years after his last NFL game, before he was living in the back of a truck, before he was smearing super glue on his teeth and tasering himself because he claimed this eased the pain before he died at age 50. The things we do to one another, okay, uh, hell, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just tired and confused right now. That's why I say it. I can't really, I can't say it the way I want to say it. I could, I could say I could answer this real easy at other times, but right now I'm just tired. Back to the column. I've spoken with a lot of current players on this matter, and while they are concerned about the dangers of headshots, one, yes, one, told me they wouldn't do it all over again. They love the game. They love the checks. And to me, that's what this is all about. It's a money grab. The CBSSports.com column is on the Internet, therefore its author has access to search engines and could type in a player's name and the term career earnings. And if he typed in the name of Junior Seau, he would get the estimate that while he was All-Pro 10 times and was named to the All-1990s team, Junior Seau made about $28 million in salary before he drove off a cliff in 2010 and before he shot himself in the chest with a shotgun in 2012. Take me! Take me! Leave my dad alone! Back to the column. Nobody makes players play the game. They want to do so. It's like a police officer or fireman. They know the risks. They know they can get killed at any time. NFL players know they can get hurt and have long-term issues. CBS says its columnist has covered the game for years. He must remember Justin Strelzik, who spent nine years on the offensive line of the Pittsburgh Steelers, the doctor who would confirm a neuropathologist's diagnosis that Strelzik had CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, said, if I didn't know anything about this case and I looked at the slides, I would have asked, was this patient a boxer? By 2004, Strelzik was so tormented he led police on a high-speed chase, despite having committed no crime. The chase ended with Strelzik crossing the median into oncoming traffic and crashing into a tractor trailer. Back to the column. The good news is the NFL as we know it isn't going anywhere. That's the best thing of all. The bottom line is most fans and media members act like they care about the concussion plaintiffs and we are sympathetic to them, but the reality is we are all selfish. Without the NFL, I wouldn't have a job, nor would a lot of people. The columnist states, boasts, how his reporting, his journalism is utterly compromised by his conclusion that without the NFL, he wouldn't have a job. Perhaps he remembers the ex-Tampa Bay Buck, Tom McHale, who had a job without the NFL. He had gone to my alma mater, Cornell, graduating from the great hotel school there. After football, he had become a successful restaurateur. He had three children, and he had been happy in retirement. On May 25, 2008, they found Tom McHale in a friend's home in Florida, drug overdose. The postmortem concluded that, like so many of the other players mentioned here, his brain showed significant, conclusive evidence of CTE. Back to the column. I'm glad it's over so we can get back to focusing on the games on the field. Then again, I might have to spend some time brushing up on my legal information. I am going after my high school and Pop Warner football organization. After all, how do you think I became so nasty? The columnist will remember Dave Durson of the 1985 Super Bowl champion Bears and 90 Super Bowl champion Giants 
and in the time before February 17, 2011, before he texted his family saying he wanted his brain to be used in the research into CTE at Boston University, before he had put the shotgun to his chest and pulled the trigger, Dave Dewerson had become so, to use the columnist's word, nasty, that his own son was afraid of him. If somebody pissed him off at the office, he was yelling, screaming at the office, he came back home and he took it out on us. I couldn't even bring friends over because I was scared that my dad would just snap off and, you know, they'd, they'd be like, oh, you have a crazy dad. Back to the column about the author's apocryphal lawsuit over a concussion. After all, how do you think I became so nasty? One is tempted to offer an insult here or to mock, as the columnist has mocked. But in point of fact, as the Duerson and Seau and many of the other cases suggest, irrational anger and disconnecting from the human pain of others are in fact warning signs for CTE or other possible concussion-related trauma. And quite frankly, it is my earnest hope that this columnist gets himself checked out before it's too late. Okay, minus that music at the end. So yeah, there you have it. Many, many cases, some more severe than others, but that's why when I watch my foot, my team, the Kansas City Chiefs, play and do well, I, I, I just can't do it without knowing all of this, remembering all of this and feeling a bit guilty, feeling a little hypocritical. And when I see guys like Eric Berry, who has survived cancer, he survived cancer, made a remarkable recovery in a remarkably short amount of time. When I see him tackle the crap out of guys with his, with his, ultimately his helmet, his head, I worry. I can't help but think, oh my gosh, he's come through, he's survived so much, he's been so unbelievable. Ugh. I hope to God that he doesn't go down the path that so many other NFL players, NFL stars have. He's a defensive player. They hit a lot. Oh, and it's just tough. If you haven't seen the documentary, <clears throat> I recommend looking it up. Frontline, that is this, that's the series. And this one was called A League of Denial, which is a perfect title. It's exactly what the NFL is. Um, you could watch A League of Denial. There's also a Hollywood version of the movie that's been made recently called Concussion, starring Bill Smith. It's not a bad movie. It was it was squished, squelched, because like a lot of the main television networks, the NFL has partners and has a lot of power. And I don't think they wanted it to do well for obvious reasons, and so I think they had something to do with the little advertising it got. Anyway, there's that movie, there's the documentary, there's also a book, and that's what that's where this all started. Um, a League of Denial, written by the same reporters that participated in the documentary. I suggest watching it, even if you're not a big football fan, because it's fascinating. All right, so that's all we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, just something to think about, something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And, um, yeah, hope, I really hope that, I really hope that most, as we expose this more and more, 
That's kind of the ultimate question, though. How can this problem be fixed? How do you fix football so that people aren't getting hit in the head as much? As Bob Costas has said, it is fundamentally unsustainable. And that's what's scary. People love their football. Heck, the team in Washington won't even change their name. How, are we going to, how would we change the game so much that they wouldn't tackle using their heads anymore? It's not a question I have the answer to. If you have thoughts on it, feel free to call in. Our number here is 718-6827. Wait. The number here is 718-928-9732. Again, that's 718-928-9732. And we are going to be right back.
Okay, friends, it's just about time for my favorite segment of the show. It's a segment I like to call... Must See Scary Movies. Yes, that's right. Must See Scary Movies. Last week, we kicked off this segment with an in-depth feature on the movie... Pet Cemetery. friends i've actually been up all night long it's not an exaggeration i never went to bed last night and it kind of fits perfectly with the theme of scary movies when i think of people sitting up all night in their gross apartments all by themselves with the rats and the rodents and the dark and the alleys i think of psychos and murderers and monsters and demons and ghouls And that's what I am. At least that's how I feel. I'm not going to go into why I was up all night, but let me just say it has something to do with... Living in a van down by the river! But you know what? That's all ancient history. I've gotten over it, clearly, and tonight is the night. Tonight's the night we're gonna make it happen. Did I really just do that? All right, well, anyway, let's not waste any more time, folks. Oh, don't mind the scream. That's just someone in my building. Yes, tonight's featured scary movie is, as I've just said, well, I truly believe that one of the most identifying factors of the film and one of the most critical elements in what made the film so scary was the music. And so I'm just going to let the music tell you what the film is, shall we? Well, friends, if you don't know by now, you just don't know the score. This is the music from the film Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, a classic among American cinema. Back when I did my episode on the best film scores of all time, this was not only included, but highly expanded upon. So I won't harp on it too much, but at the same time, I do have to say, the music in this film is almost like a a character in the movie. It adds so much to the overall feel and atmosphere throughout the film that I honestly believe... If it weren't for the music, the movie would not be nearly as intense or scary or successful. Even Alfred Hitchcock himself is quoted as saying, 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. How he came up with 33%, I'll never know. I would disagree. I would say it adds at least 57% to the tension and drama of the film. While Alfred Hitchcock was greatly fond of Bernard Herrmann and they had been partners for a long time, he was hesitant to hire him for this production, not because he didn't want him, he absolutely did, but Herrmann, he refused to accept a reduced fee for the film's lower budget. Totally worth it, though, I would say, wouldn't you? 
What's very interesting and not many people know is that originally Hitchcock requested a jazz score for this film. A jazz score. I just can't even fathom that. Can you even picture, I mean, think of how different this film would be had there been a jazz score. I just don't understand how he ever thought that was a good idea. And obviously Bernard Herrmann felt that same way because clearly he just went right ahead and totally disregarded Hitchcock's request. No, I will not hide in the fruit cellar. <laughs> you think I'm fruity, huh? Herman thought, well, he thought that the single tone color of the all-string soundtrack would be a good way of reflecting the black and white cinematography of the film. What a genius. What a genius he was. The film's main theme, which is what you're hearing right now, is a tense counterpunnel piece, and it sets the tone of impending violence. It returns three times throughout the film. Though nothing shocking occurs during the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, the title music remains in the audience's mind, lending tension to these early scenes. Herman maintains tension through the slower moments as well, uh, through the use of ostinato or even the use of silence. Here's a perfect example, probably the best example of how effective the use of silence can be in film Probably the best example of all time. I'm going to play the shower scene for you. And I want you to notice how, for the longest time, you hear no music. All you hear is the running water of the shower. Take a listen, folks. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the film, what's wrong with you? Go out and rent it and watch it today. But what's happening during that long period where all you heard was the running water of the shower is you see, you see through the shower curtain that someone comes in the bathroom and slowly approaches the shower step by step. As it gets closer, you start to recognize the silhouette as that of an old woman. Knowing the character checked into the motel by herself, one can't help but wonder who this could be, and why are they approaching. Then suddenly it happens. <coughs> highly effective, highly, 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 highly. 
regarded. You know what else is interesting and amazing? When you hear that sound of the knife being stabbed into the woman's skin, you know what they used to give that effect? They took a knife and they jammed it, stabbed it, if you will, into not a human body, but a fruit. I believe it was an apple. Not positive on the apple, but I know it was some kind of fruit. And that is the sound you're hearing when you hear the stabbing, stabbing, stabbing of the knife. And you know what, folks? I think I may just leave it at that. However, I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't at least mention what it is, what the overall theme of this movie is. I'll say, and this is quite subjective, so take it with a grain of salt, but I feel that the overall theme and the moral of the movie Psycho is that no matter how old you are, no matter where you are in life or where you came from in life, the truth is that when you get right down to it... Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Say what you will, folks, but the truth remains, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation. Mother knows best. It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now, as I should have, years ago. He was always bad. And in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man as if I could do anything except just sit and stare like one of his stuffed birds. Oh, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. I'll let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. listening to all righty so that was the scary movie for this week if you remember <clears throat> if you listened last week i said that we weren't going to be doing scary movie reviews um most of the month of december and that's true in fact that's going to be the last scary movie review we do until the new year so i hope you've enjoyed them so far i think this is the fourth show the fourth episode of the next best thing and we've reviewed the exorcist pet cemetery um, Dead Silence, and now Psycho. We also talked about Shelley Duvall and how she's gone batshit crazy a few weeks ago, and she was in The Shining. Another classic film, another great, great piece of horror history. And that's just about all the time we have this week, folks. Um, I will leave you with our Twitter handle. It is at Next Best Radio. And you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NBT Radio. Please do us, give us a like, follow us on Twitter. We post most of the articles and videos we refer to on those pages for you to enjoy. Uh, until next time, I'm John B. Lerner, and this is The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. Until next time, be well, everybody.
Building. 